opening the box and then going and having the runner out every now and then is really good for the chimp and that's kind of why I started using this outdoor adventure to, to free my chimp. Hi, welcome to Pattern Outdoors. Uh, today I am joined by Isaac Kenyon who is uh, an adventurer, an eco-adventurer um, and we're going to talk to him about all, all his adventures uh, and a little bit about his background. So, Isaac, Thanks. welcome. Thank you very much for having me. No in, problem uh, at all. A lovely hotel in Fort yeah, William. Exactly. <laughs> the the Alexandra Hotel has uh, allowed us to have a, have a corner of their lounge to, to sit and do these chats, so uh, that's cool. So, um, as we talked before we started, uh, I like to, to look at your path in the outdoors, hence the name of the podcast, and where it's all started from and how you've got to where you are now and what your plans are going forward. So, where, where does your kind of origins start in, for the outdoors or, or for your, from childhood? The origins from childhood, usually it, come, <laughs> it comes a little bit from there. I mean, I, I came, I was brought up in Luton, a bit of an urban area, very protected, not so nice, everybody, um, but I, it, it's got its merits. Um, but the, yeah, the main thing about that place was with my family, protect me. I did only things with the family outside, really. They didn't let me go to the parks. They didn't let me that sort of thing because it just so many things happening. So I spent a lot of my time indoors when I was younger, playing, playing games, Pokemon, whatever, you name it, those sort of things as a kid. I got to um, sort of 16 and my dad had taken me, you know, fishing and I had little trips out. I knew what outdoors was, but I never did it with friends. And really, I didn't do it with my cohort. My school wasn't very good. It got closed down. Uh, we didn't have Duke of Edinburgh. I didn't know what Duke of Edinburgh was. Um, people were talking about it um, when I went to sixth form. And I thought, what is this? Well, we never spoke about this in, in my school. And oh yeah, I'm on gold. I said, I haven't even know what bronze is yet. <laughs> so this is where, I, where I'm from, right? Um, and it was intriguing to sort of figure out my sort of purpose, what I want to do in life at that time I was kind of interested in being a paleontologist. I watched Jurassic Park when I was younger and I wanted to do, do geology and things like that. And as you went into sort of geology and that world, it's very much, you know, outdoors related, but that was not at high school. That was when I got into sixth form. So I was, so from the age of 16 to 18, I started to develop a bit more care for the outdoors, but in, in a sense of just for my career, I wanted to go in, but still it wasn't like sporting outdoors it was more just I need it I need to know what the rocks are um, then it was only in university when I jumped from doing geology and different subjects in a level to the university to do a geoscience degree that I started to really get into the outdoor scene um, and then there was people who would be a lot more I guess privileged of such where they had private school trips to ski resorts and da -da 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 -da, and all these great things all the time. And then um, they would tell me all these stories and, and I was, I did some stuff like this with my dad. He took me fishing and he took me places like this, but it wasn't quite um, on the same level. Uh, ice mountaineering I heard about and mountaineering was at uni. So I felt like, what is all this stuff? Did, um, you, did you get the opportunity to try that kind of stuff? What, what was it you were able to try at university? Uh, I started Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> So late. Did you tell about it? <laughs> I was about 19, and so I found out about it towards the end of sixth form. And then there was a, 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 
a sort of a thing about with I was part of the swimming club because right. I used to swim mm -hmm. all the time. That was the sport I did, and it was all indoors. Mm -hmm. And and I took it all the way to university level. I was doing national league type stuff. I was quite good at swimming. And with swimming, I got into the committee. And with the committee, it was how do you improve sort of people getting um, from people getting more out of their membership and just swimming. So we're talking connecting and teamwork and team building and learning from each other. And this one guy said, I used to do Duke of Edinburgh coordinator job, sort of a coordinator job, like going in voluntary. And he said, I would be happy to set up Duke of Edinburgh for those who have not done it. I was like, <laughs> I've not done it, let's do it. And then, so I started doing uh, things like that, Duke of Edinburgh. And then from there, it was like, you can do mountains. And then with the uh, swimming club, I was thinking, right, what other things can we do that's different to swimming? And someone said, well, open water swimming. And then from that, it led to my first big adventure, real big adventure, okay. the English Channel Swim. Um, and that really got me out there. So that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's where you got to the, the, obviously yeah, the first adventure. There was a mental health aspect to all of this as well. Yes. You want to talk about that just now? We can do, yeah. I, yeah, I'd um, like to. So not only was I intrigued about the adventure as I was going for university and getting these opportunities, I noticed that the indoor life and the way of digital tech and the way it was going was not for me. I was not keeping up with it. My anxiety was going crazy. Um, I, couldn't, I could sit indoors for 12, 13 hours working on a laptop and not like know what's going on outside or what my awareness was gone and it, it, it took a lot of realization to be like I'm always stressed I'm upset I don't like it and people saying people saying uh, have you taken a break to go outside walk and stuff like this and I'm going to walk in the woods and things and I started reconnecting with nature slowing down and I thought I really need to incorporate the outdoors into my life so that was another spurring moment so the too. how long did it take for that wind down for you to realize? Uh, you know, when you, so you've gone from realizing that oh, being outside is, is, is good for me. How long between the, well, I'm, I'm in front of the screen too long to actually realizing that the outdoors was, was benefiting your mental health or, yeah, or taking I, away that anxiety? I think um, at least almost a year. Yeah? To really get that, like, yes, I need to make a life change here. Okay. And I can't do this for the rest and of my life. And that was at the beginning of uni? And that was at sort of not middle-ish middle of uni okay. sort of time. Um, the trouble with university for me was as well, I don't come from a very techie family and I didn't have a you know computer till I went to university. And I got a computer and people had all these smartphones, the smartphones started coming out and life was on Facebook, events was on Facebook, what is this? Um, I didn't have this social media stuff until I went to uni, it was needed then. So then I kind of got bombarded with all this stuff on top of the amount of tech that you, and the amount of stuff that you need to do online just for your degree. It was a bit overwhelming. And I found that when I was outside, even when I went swimming, swimming helped, of course. It was an outlet, but it wasn't the same as getting fresh air and you know all the information disappearing from your mind because you're focusing on the sounds of birds or the rustling of trees. Uh, in the water, I guess you, you hear the sound of water, you know, but it's, it's, it was different for, for me in the pool. I, I don't think you get the fresh air and you don't get the vitamin D, you don't get the brain chemicals that you can get from being outdoors. 
um, you know, oxytocin, serotonin, those sort of things you get from outdoors. You, you, you don't get as much from inside a pool. Um, so, so yeah. So when you moved to the, the open water swimming with the, when you were part of the committee, did that help in any way? Or, or did you notice any, anything there when you were that, doing that, that to me was kind of a, a bit of a strategy to, to experiment getting outdoors more. Right. Um, so using it as a way to get outdoors um, and promote obviously more things that you can do with the swimming club. Mm -hmm. um, and that really helped my mental health because I was not just always swimming in the pool, I was swimming in the lake. And there's something very meditative about being in like all your touch points surrounded by water and you're just very connected to the natural landscape when you're inside a lake outside. So you've got, you know, above the water, you've got, you know, the wind and the air, like, and then you've got all, the, all of the cold water surrounding your body and it's, it's you're, you're being, you're being kind of touched by nature in all aspects. It's, it's a complete sensory overload for nature. And I, I found that really, 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 really um, therapeutic. And, and then as I spent more time outdoors because uh, in the open water to extend my time to develop that cold uh, resilience that you need to swim the English Channel, um, I loved it more and more the more I spent. And, uh, and then obviously move, going on to the, the English Channel swim, how, what, does, what does training look like to, to, to swim the English Channel? That was a bit of a horror show for when I started. So <laughs> oh, was not, it? Do not do how I did it. Right. How I started it was... Learn by your mistakes, is that what we're going to do here? Yeah, we're yeah, going to okay. learn by my mistakes here. So the first thing I learned was when you sign up to do a challenge, see who has done the challenge, ask them for some advice. If there's research, read about it. Don't just think, okay, there's an English channel. All right, so I need to be able to look, look at the rules book. Okay, the rule book says, got to swim in speedos, can't swim with like, you know, wetsuit whatever. So I need to be able to swim for, you know, two, I was doing it as a relay. I need, to, every single person in this team has to do two hours in the water apparently with, with speedos to be able to do the, the, the distance. To, to in, qualify. Yeah, 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 qualify, right? So, <laughs> right, let's go in the lake and see how far we can swim in speedos. That was first off, that was the... In February. How did that go? No, <laughs> not very well. <laughs> Hypothermia, shock, people saying, you're killing me. <laughs> what have you done to me? And it was just kind of like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, we're, all, we're all like literally crawled up on the bank, some of us like shaking. And um, then we get warm because we thought smart there. I did bring warm clothes. I thought, yeah, uh -huh. we need some warm clothes. But this is how amateur I was back then at outdoors. And I, I was coming from a city mindset of, just, just do it like uh, without much research, and I think that is kind of not okay. the way to do it at all. Yeah. And so, yeah, the first learning is to spend some time researching what you, what you should do, and what you shouldn't do, if if that's possible. If yeah. it's not been done before, then think of what could go wrong. Uh, hypothermia, February, and mm. mm -hmm. well, we're still here, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah. So the how did the the challenge go? How did the yeah, it went really well. Everyone managed to build that cold resilience over time. So that was that shock really shocked everyone to do research and we got really prepared. Right. So although it was kind of stupid, it ended up actually galvanizing such a driven spirit within the team to do it. And, you know, when you are shocked like that, you don't want that to happen again. Your mindset completely changes. I always like when I talk to people in the outdoors, 
a lot of the, even the most experienced people have stories of where they've done something extremely stupid that scared them. Mm. And from that fear, they're now really good at preparing and they've got this whole know knowledge, know-how what to do. So yeah, no, we, we did really well. Um, a couple of us got stung by jellyfish, but you're so cold, you don't really feel it. Um, in our training, we got stung by jellyfish as well, some of us. Um, so we were aware of that, but it's quite hard to avoid them because they just come out of, because when you're swimming the channel, it's, it's kind of like black um, and, and you can only kind of see your hand um, in terms of distance in the water so by the time a jellyfish comes it's quite hard <laughs> it's, it's the upside on you to, to, to dodge it so it's like you you can swerve and mm. sometimes there's that slow motion because there's the wave and you kind of like trying to roll the wave and then the jellyfish hopefully will take a different trajectory off you yeah <laughs> quite and good. sometimes it won't yeah <laughs> and then what was the, the the time period from that february um that you went that was into, the training that was period the starting point and june and when did the when did the uh, event happen after that? Uh, June, yeah, it was oh, June, June, sorry, June, sorry, yeah. yeah. So June was the event. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't long to no. get ready. Um, again, um, we just thought, oh yeah, we can swim the channel. We're all great at swimming distance in the pool. Surely we can do this in outdoors. Uh -huh. It's a different ball game with the colds. You lose energy, and also you, when you're in a pool, of course, you can you know do a tumble turn, push off the wall, gives you a break, mm -hmm. or hold on to the side, gives you a break. When you're doing that in the middle of the sea, you're treading water, there's no break. Mm. So yeah, fitness was, you know, we were, I guess, a bit overconfident at that time, thinking like we're swimmers, we can do this. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a shock um, getting into the training of that. But yeah, we did 12 hours for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, I did six, uh, I think about six hours of that yeah. um, as one of the strongest swimmers. Um, a couple of the others were still not so confident with the cold. and. Right were struggling after maybe an hour or so, so it was. But they had to stay in for two hours to, to make to the, do the, qualification. the qualification of the event. Yeah, but when it came to doing the actual, in the sea when it was mm -hmm. quite choppy towards the middle, it was a bit diff more difficult, I think, than on the coast. Yeah. So what, did, what kind of distance then, in your two hour stint, what kind of distance are you able to, to swim, oh. sort of in the, in the kind of center of the, oh, the channel okay. where the tides could? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you've got different t types of tide. You've got the, you've got one type of tide that goes towards in in the middle of the channel. You've got one one tide that takes you in one direction, um, and that one you kind of go with a bit. And then there's a bit of a hiatus where there is no tide um, because there's another tide that comes from France in a different direction. But you kind of you kind of have to fight a bit. Um, but because of the two tides, they kind of counteract each other and becomes quite flat and still in the middle. Um, so what we found was that those who did the start, it was quite easy. And then in the middle, it was a bit sticky. And in the end, it was like, okay, now we need to like grit. Uh, and then swimming um, the last hour to land was the hardest because you've got the biggest tide pushing out. Um, so you're fighting a really strong tide at that point. Um, but yeah, I was covering about two to three kilometers per hour at times. Um, yeah, it wasn't too fast, but it was like fast and fast enough to get across in 12 hours. Yeah, no, uh, especially with the tides uh, sort of shifting about, I can imagine that's a, yeah. that's a bit of pressure. They put on me there. on at the end, because as one of the strongest swimmers, I had to, to bring in the, the, the last fight. Um, there was one p person, um, the boat pilot said, <laughs> right, this is gonna take probably an hour and that person got in and it was an hour because the tide was so strong they still probably had another two hours swimming which we 
they both piloted really mm. tell us much about. Mm. Um, okay. So then I had to jump in to do another two hours to add on to my four hour tally. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, Beware, yeah, do yeah. what it takes when you're at yeah, that point exactly, you can yeah. see France it's like yeah give me another I'm just going to keep going until we're here now I can see it now so oh, good. Um, so that that was while you were at university yeah. was it yeah um, and was Duke of Edinburgh happening did it, did it happen did yeah, you, yeah I did got you get? the bronze then the silver nice. I didn't manage to get a gold in time um, right. and the person who was doing it graduated right uh, and then it was like I do it started my masters and I just didn't have time. Okay. No, but no. I would love to do it, uh, the gold, but I'm a bit old now. <laughs> um, when I left university, I was thinking, oh, should I do the gold now? And then I was like job hunting and mm. things like this. So I didn't get around to it, but I ended up doing like what you would do in gold anyway for fun because I started mm. getting into the camping scene and doing the outdoor stuff on yeah. my own, right? Well, that's it. And, and it sort of took you into it. So yeah. from the, uh, from the, the, the cross channel venture, what was what was the next one, or or what was your mindset after that? Was it right? What's my next What's my next adventure, or is it what? Yeah, that what am I going to do next? I knew that I had to facilitate outdoors into my life, mm-hmm. and I also knew that sport was a really good way to do that. So I wanted to pursue an outdoor sport and keep that momentum where I've got my I'm, I've found my balance. So. The way the world is going, a lot of digital tech is being used in a lot of jobs. You, you, there are no jobs. Sometimes there are jobs that you don't have to do digital tech stuff, but uh, especially in my industry, in the energy industry, but I really like the idea of supporting <laughs> sustainable energy for everybody. That's one of the things I wanted to do um, when I started going into university. So jumping from that paleontology, learning geology and learning the importance of geology so that we could have a sustainable economy kind of moved career a bit, but I was still within the geo science. Um, when I was kind of thinking about what I need to do with life is that I need to have some form of outlet all the time that's consistent and Outdoor Challenges has that for me. Um, so I was on, obviously I was on the hunt for something like an Outdoor Challenge or such that I could I get stuck into and I can, you know, learn new sport, um, new challenge. and there were so many different opportunities because when you delve into the outdoor world, you realize there's a, there is endless opportunity. I mean, from, you know, you, you just, you can mix sports up. That's the best bit. Oh, let's uh, be creative like a kid. I'm, I'm going to now ice climb up here and then I'm going to whack a parachute out. <laughs> you know, yeah, you can do that. And that creativity was really exciting and it, and it brought sort of, um, a kiddish nature to, to my life that I felt like when you get older you lose mm-hmm. as bills come in, family, mm-hmm. kids, house, whatever. Mm-hmm. It starts getting a bit serious. Outdoors doesn't have to be and generally it can be serious. Some people obviously take it very, very seriously because of the safety and there are dangerous aspects to it but then you can have that creative kid inside and I didn't want to let that go. I thought that's really important to keep. Um, and it was really good for the mental health. Um, and for me, it was like releasing my inner chimp, you know? <laughs> that makes sense. I did hear you talk about uh, on another yeah. podcast, your inner chimp, what, talk, talk about the inner chimp and how that, how oh, that works. The, the sort of the mindset of, yeah. yeah, I guess just being a bit more relaxed about the way you think and going back to nature uh, in, of such and mm-hmm. going back to your roots, you know? Movement is really key for, 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 the, for the body and the mind because we are nomadic species. We come from a nomadic way of life, a 
our ge genomes and our genetics are from you know, monkeys, or, I guess, if people believe this. <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, that sort of thing is really important. And now we're moving into a digital world where that requires a lot of sedentary living. So this is kind of like putting a chimp in a box. And if you don't let the chimp out the box, they go crazy. And mm -hmm. hence maybe why my mental health started going mad. Um, so op opening the box and then going and having the runner route every now and then is really good for the chimp. And that's kind of why I started using this outdoor adventure to, to free my chimp, yeah. uh, if that makes sense. Free, um, free your chimp, there's a tagline. Yeah, 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 you can call that as your podcast title. <laughs> yeah. Isaac Kenyon, free freeze the chimp. chimp. <laughs> free your chimp, free your inner chimp. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was actually a good one. Um, so your what was the next adventure then after the, yeah, so this one? There was plenty of find? opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, there was um, lots of people talking to me about, oh, let's do like a big hike, let's do this. Because once they'd seen I'd done the channel, it kind of inspired people to get in touch that this guy, he can do endurance, mm -hmm. he can do different sports. He, you know, he could be a good team member to have. So I started getting a lot of opportunities. Um, and one of them was for a friend of mine that was just incredibly audacious. And it was just like, right, this is going to take me into a new world of living, more than just English Channel, where I'm going from England to France. I know that that's a one-day event, and you know, help is on the way. I've got the boat. And so he asked, row the Atlantic with me. Okay. And I said, why well, like rowing? I know what rowing is. I've seen it in the Olympics, like the the rowing boat sort of thing, and. Um, he said, yeah, like there's these um, ma massive boats that are designed to be seaworthy and you can row them like a like a sailing boat sort of thing. Um, and I, I was like, OK, cool. So send me this details. And I looked at it and I just thought, that's a whole new world that you're, you're, you're doing because you're actually detaching yourself from society. You're going out of the way of the normal society into the middle of the ocean. There's a huge element of risk you can get lost things can happen and no one can help you. You're on your own at times. That for me was like an experiment to see, you know, how much outdoor time or in a chimp can I, can I master from that? And what, what would my life be like if I've experienced life without having society in this way? And long story short, fast forward, that trip was like building a new society. Okay completely out of the norm but weirdly we'd all go and do similar things that you do now in your in your normal world delegated teams and da 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 but in this little boat mm -hmm. and it was interesting I just wanted to know how would we react being so disparate to everybody everyone else and away from everything and you know no bills no this no having to go to work I mean you can row but you don't have to row you know you can just float if you want you know, eat like how would we be in this world when there's only four, there was only four of us in this team, four, four people. What would it be like? It's like an experiment. And then obviously outdoor time, 40 days out. It was about 40 days just being outdoors yeah. and doing stuff out in the sea. So uh, you approached that as a kind of experiment? Yeah. Yeah, social experiment. Uh, pretty much, that's yeah. a bit <laughs> odd probably to say. But yeah, a bit of like a social experiment, yeah. Social experiment and like it had the core competencies that I like to do is like I like to one um, push myself to has to have some outdoor 
element to it, I guess, you know, for the mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. You learn, I need to learn as well, that's quite important, like, doing the same thing over and over again can get a bit stale, and this had, like, ultimate learning opportunities. I come from landlocked Luton, sailing, what's that? Um, I've never done anything like being at sea, and rowing, again, I didn't know anything much about that, and it was just like a whole new world of learning, and then the impact that you can have with drawing attention through the audacity of the challenge, you can transfer that attention to good causes. And that's something I learned in the English Channel, was that when I started doing the English Channel, I'd say, what, are you doing it for charity? And I said, yeah, we're doing it for charity. People throwing money at the charity, and I was, that was really exciting, that you can do an outdoor thing for the good of other people. Um, so then moves, that moves uh, a lot of mountains for, yeah. for charities. So the, the build-up to that, to the role, um, for, in terms of training and in terms of getting the kit together, I mean, do you just hire a boat like that? Or, or is it, what's the, <laughs> yeah. is, is, is the one parked up? Or what's the? Lesson one, research, isn't it? <laughs> That's what I had to do. Yeah. Um, so I learned from English Channel, boom, let's get straight on the research. Let's find out, what, what, right, where does, how does this concept come? Where did the idea come from? Who is it from? Oh, there's a race. Okay, great. Right, let's go into the race. Let's figure out why did this race start? Let's go into the depths of what this whole thing is all about. Uh, and then um, from there we met various different people who had done it before, various people who were organisers of the event. And then from there you kind of get a bit of a blueprint together of you need to buy one of these boats that are bespoke made. And there's people who make them now. Um, before people used to make their own ones, but now there's actual boat builders design, designing them and tell you what equipment you need inside them and there's experts. It's kind of like um, now, uh, this year, the, the Atlantic Row Race is like Formula One. <laughs> right. You know, that, you've that got different types of boats now that okay. are designed to be faster and blah, blah, blah. And they've got this technology, that technology, this type of rowing seat that's supposed to be better than that one. Right. So it's different. But kind of when I did it in 2018, it was just on the tipping point of becoming this big, like, Everest okay. thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I found it really, really... Um, interesting to learn how to acquire a boat how to um kind of get all the food and the kit that you need um, you get it from various different sources or you can get it from previous boats that have rowed mm -hmm. and that was probably a quicker way to do it uh, we ended up going down the cheaper route because i'd just come out of university with a forty thousand pound debt so i was looking at sponsorship and then you look at the budget as well so you you do you make your little blueprint and you look at the budget that you've made with all the things you need and you work out one hundred twenty thousand pounds that's more than the house deposit <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, like six times out yeah. the house deposit for most people like yeah that's ridiculous and um so there's us four thinking all right so we've got this amount of money to get and then we have to get fit enough to do this and get all this knowledge about sea um that's going to take about three years i guess maybe two years so we planned for three years mm -hmm. to get ready for this thing and first year comes no money got no money we no sponsor would sponsor us right why is that because we had no experience of building a company so we're like door knocking with no brand or anything mm -hmm. and that was another learning curve it was like you need to have some sort of brand or some presence behind you and a reason and a purpose that people can buy into um, rather than just just the charity sometimes the charity is not enough 
and we didn't realize that. So that was a learning curve. So I took, it took almost two years to learn how to start a business that was investable. And then from there, we started getting the money in, which allowed us to then get the kit and equipment to then train and get the experience to be ready for it. So, so the, the experience came last? The experience came last. <laughs> that was the funniest thing. Yeah. So we had to get good at chatting, essentially, for a year. Yeah. You end up good at chat, doing deals and whatever, getting mm -hmm. the money. Mm -hmm. Then you get the kit. Then you play with the kit and you work out how it all goes. And then you've got that sort of year to build up that fitness. And I mean, we started fitness training before you were doing that. You can do fitness training whenever. But fitness on an ocean rowing boat is different to fitness on a uh, rowing machine or rowing boat, uh, like a lake, lake rowing boat. It's a different type of fitness altogether. Like you know, th th these boats go side to side, the oars are up and down all over the place. Um, yeah, it's, it's a completely more brutal, you get hit a lot, uh, it's completely different. So experience on the boat was really valuable. And if I could go back again, um, with now my knowledge would be like, get that money really fast. So then you can spend two years getting ready for, for the row. Saying that, we, when we were talking to people doing this row, some people would literally just rock up with no experience. So they would have the money, yeah. and then they would go to the race, and this was before the race got strict, right. and said that you need this sort of amount of hours on the boat. Here's my 30,000 pounds. Just yeah. an average guy who just said, oh, um, I'm in the pub, that sounds great. Um, I'll be there in about two weeks. Okay, cool. And then just rocked up and, and learned to row on the boat, learned to do all of the nav by joining like a... It, <laughs> yeah, that's for real. Yeah. That's, that's, that's mad. Uh, yeah. That's another level. Um, uh, yeah. Dangerous was, was one of the words I'd use for that. Idiotic, yeah. maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, was, it, it was weird. When I entered this world of the rowers, ocean rowers, the special group of people of no limits... Mm -hmm. Their mindset was like every single person who was going for that ocean had a limitless mindset, like okay. can do anything. And that was really cool to be around those people, go-getters. Right. And it's really motivating yeah. to be around people. I was going to say, do you, so you were able to, to use that, those people to, to your advantage in terms of you use their, their, the way they lived or the way they... Yeah, they... you learn from each other. Because mm -hmm. um, you all come from different backgrounds where you kind of had... A lot, a lot of them who don't have their own money to put into the row generally had to work quite hard to develop these special skills and really be really driven to, to make it happen. I mean, coming out of university with no job and £40,000 debt to then raise 120000 in two years separate to a job and manage your full time, you've got to have a certain mindset to do that. And there was a lot of people like this coming from various different stories and it was incredible. I mean people with disabilities rowing this ocean mm -hmm. and how they overcome that is unbelievable. Yeah, I, if I'm honest, rowing the Atlantic Ocean isn't something that I've kind of ever been drawn to, but I can, I get the, uh, what it would, well, from, a, from an outsider's perspective, I get what, what it would take, but what did it take to be on that boat whilst you were on the boat from, from setting off, because uh, you set, set off from the Canaries for that one, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, the Canary um, Islands. Um, what was it like being on the boat then for 40 days? You don't know until you do it. Yeah. That was the hardest part, was always the not knowing. Mm -hmm. And that's where you need courage and bravery. So the first day you start rowing out and you get to a point where you 
can't see land, and that you cannot kind of prepare for unless you've done it before. Because there are people who said, I've sailed and not seen land, but I know it's only two days. I'm rowing, and people say it's going to take 40 to 80 days. Could take longer, depending on what happens, or storms. That could come at any point. We don't know. <laughs> what so unknowns? There's a lot of unknowns to deal with in your head, and mentally, um, that's something that you just have to accept. It's just accept the unknown. This is going to happen. Were you able to do that? Not at the beginning. No? The first, the first week was a hard transition to be in the mindset of at any given point there could be a hurricane or something. At some point in this row we might run out of um, water because the water maker has broken. You know, that could happen. Um, we need a hand pump. We had a hand pump as plan B. What if that breaks? Okay, so now we need to have a satellite phone call to try and get help because there's no way we're going to survive out here without water. And then hearing stories that sometimes cargo ships and things might not get to you for about a week and a half, you're dead by then. So I, that, that is really hard to deal with in the mines. Um, and it was kind of like a whole week of that playing in your mind on the shifts when you're off shift. So you'd row. And you're rowing and you're kind of in the mode and you, 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 you're quietly just thinking of the things that could go wrong all the time and just you're thinking of battle plans like what not everyone thinks like this I mean this was my own personal experience but I'm thinking of things that could go wrong and what can I do in those instances and how will I react and how, like okay so what if the, the battery packs and the power's not working okay I'm going to do this I'm gonna, and I would, I would do that all the time and do you think that helped? yeah did it? Okay. Yeah, because it was like I had a plan for something, yeah. you know? It just felt like I've, I've tried my best. And then, say, la vie, I had to have this mindset of let go. So if, for instance, that didn't work, that plan, I mean, I've tried. I've, I've given it my all. Um, let's try and think of a plan right there and then. But at the end of the day, you might be on a life raft um, and just waiting. So what, what plan did you have to use? What went wrong? Right. The... Um, weirdly, nothing. No? We were so lucky. <laughs> so we were having, um, we had constant communication, sat phone, mm -hmm. with um, these, these race directors who would check in every now and then and see what's going on. Sometimes they would just check in just to see how you are, like if nothing's going wrong, they just want to see mentally how you are and how you're coping, mm -hmm. you know, so in case they need to get someone out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some people have the breakdown of the disposition of being out there and stuff like that. Um, we didn't have anything going wrong, but we were hearing on the sat phone and stories of people's things going wrong. And that was quite like anxiety inducing. So we asked them not to tell us anymore about what's going on with other boats because it was, let's, this, this is just our thing, right? We're in this boat, let's make it our own bubble. But we were incredibly lucky um, to have nothing go wrong. And I think that was testament maybe to the way we were thinking before we did our trip of the focus of preparing for what if this happened, what if that happened, what if this happened. And that might have come, I guess, from learnings, from mistakes, jumping in the cold water lake in February and not doing the research. <laughs> so I think we over-researched, right. but it was a good thing. It was benefit um, to you. So then the, uh, you mentioned that uh, you all decided that you didn't want to hear. How, how does that team dynamics work on that boat? For 40, in that little bubble for 40 days? That was the hardest part to yeah. get ready for. So team dynamics on a boat like that, you mean this is the furthest you'll be away from someone. 
Mm. This is this this is incredible. Forty days like this. Can you imagine me mm. forty days chatting on <laughs> <my> podcast? <Okay. laughs> it would be mental. But it was it was like it's that. It was great. mental at times. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, everyone had their own personalities. I'm I might come across as quite extroverted in this podcast, for instance, but I'm actually very introverted. So what I need to do is go off. I get my energy from being on my own, which is why I think maybe doing these outdoor pursuits sometimes is really good for me. It gives me this outlet to be on my own a bit. Um, so when I'm on the boat, I want to be peace and quiet. And there was people who had even more introvert tendency than I, who, you know, who needed even more quiet time. And then there was people on the boat who needed energy from getting it from other people. So you had various different people on this boat different energy levels for different reasons and it was an interesting um, dynamic that we had to learn before we went on the ocean so one of the things the good tips that i did from the research from previous rows was know your team inside out know everything about them before you go on that boat and i'm, I'm talking deepest darkest secrets and like things like what really is so embarrassing and to them that shows weakness understand their true weaknesses some people will say this is my weakness but it's not their real weakness they're hiding it and some people will say this is my strength but they actually might not quite understand their strength so what we did for two two or three months or four months maybe before the row was literally for ourselves in situations where you're kind of forced to show your strengths and show your weaknesses and put yourself under extreme pressures amongst the group to understand how everyone reacted and then understanding how everyone reacted, having a sort of a battle plan to um, make that person feel comfortable if they were having a bit of a mental health crisis, how to react in that sense, what, what they need. Mm -hmm. They will tell us or maybe they won't, but at least you can try and figure out what you can do to help, even if that is just don't talk to them or something like that. Sometimes you have to do that. Um, that happened with one, one, one of the guys was like, I, I just don't want to talk to anyone for a bit. And and that's, that's okay. What you, that's what you do. That's yeah. what you okay. What what kind of when you sound about like team building exercises before it? What yeah. what kind of exercises was it? All outdoors. All outdoors. Mostly hiking. Um, things that would we would put ourselves under time pressures as well to see mm. what happens when there's a little bit of pressure. Right. Let's go up to this peak. That peak. This peak. That peak. In this time, um, there's bad weather coming in. At, you know, putting ourselves in sim simulating these sort of mm -hmm. issues that could come up. Um, right, no food for the rest of the day. Stuff like this, you know, hangry. Like, how, how could you be without food? Like, mind changes, mm -hmm. and those were really um, in, important. But also, the times when we were on the boat and actually training on the boat, those times where you're spending maybe two two days on the boat uh, on, on along the coastline, and then kind of pushing yourselves and and working through the process, what it's gonna be like, how is it gonna be like, so understanding how people react in different circumstances when they're moving around the boat and getting their food, and oh, I like that food, and you always eat that food, why are you eating that, you know, that sort of thing, right? So making sure everyone's aware that some people love chocolate or something like this, it's really important, I think. Even the littlest details on that boat would come out as big issues. Yeah. I once um, got caught I was eating a lot. Right. Right. I was eating a hell of a lot. And More than your share? I, I didn't realize I was eating someone else's snack pack. I thought it was mine. So the I, heinous crime? It was terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, it felt like a small thing. 
It was a huge thing. Mm. And just stuff like that, and then hashing it out and just being like, okay, have some of mine for tomorrow and we'll mm. make up. Like, let's get my next tomorrow snack pack out. You can have it now. And just dealing right. with it as yeah. like gent or whatever, gents or whatever. Like just mm-hmm. not having a big argument about that because, you know, you're hungry, you're 25 days in, someone's eating your favorite chocolate that you look forward to. You've been rowing and thinking of that chocolate for two hours in the dark at 4 a.m. and then he's eating your chocolate. I mean, that's a, that's a knife, yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, being able to quickly resolve that, I actually have mine for tomorrow. Mm. And then that's it, deal done. Right? And was there much, was there many uh, situations that you had to kind of resolve or, oh, yeah. or, or, or that manifested itself into something bigger than it possibly could have been? Yeah, I mean, we had a storm yeah. and um, we had thought processes and procedures how we're going to do the storm. So if it's really, really bad, we'll throw out a power anchor, a parachute that comes off the back and keeps, holds you in, in like steady in, in the water. Um, whilst you kind of hide inside these cabins either side of the boat and just wait it out if it was really bad. But then there was elements of, oh, maybe perhaps we can continue our rowing and push through this if it's not that bad, which means that we won't have to row extra. Because if you go in the parachute anchor, we were thinking, oh, well, it will blow us back a bit. From history and research, we've known you can lose 50, 60, 100 miles. That's another day of rowing. But maybe we could just put three people rowing at the same time instead of two, because usually we row on two on, two up, we were doing that. Um, maybe we put three on and then we just row through it and it means that we can either keep trajectory um, and saves us rowing like an extra day, which would add, you know, that's, that's a whole another day of rowing, that's hard. So um, it was kind of uh, having discussions about how does everyone feel that this, um, this storm is going? Can everyone, keep rowing, Does, should we go three up? Because it's getting, it looks like it's building. Or should we get the power anchor out and having these discussions and playing around with the weather system a bit uh, on the team dynamics and some people saying, I think we should get the parachute anchor. Some people saying, no, I think we should push up. And then what we tend to, to have done beforehand is we had like a bit of a vote. Yeah. Um, and we did that in the training. We said, okay, if we're getting a stalemate, we'll try and do a, a vote. And then we need to have a rational discussion of why would this be a good idea and why would that be a good idea? And we literally were having discussions on the boat whilst rowing. So two people were rowing, still talking like about what's going to happen, the decision. Three hours, we'll be talking about the benefits, the pros, cons, da, da, da. And then eventually, um, we would, there was a little whiteboard and we would write points. Like, it was like being, I think this is probably a unique thing to our boat. Right. We were very over analytical and we were like writing points like this would be a good idea, this would be a bad idea, this, and then weighing it. Right. <laughs> it was like one to pro, two to pro, three to pro. Oh, that's two now on cons. <laughs> it was a bit like that, yeah, and then that uh-huh. helped us decide. Right. And then we were all like happy with the decision. You've got, you got to have your process, I suppose. You but then uh, we did have an overriding um, captain on the boat. Okay. And if really, if because at this point it was kind of like we're playing, but it's there's nothing real serious right now. If it was an emergency, 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 mm-hmm. captain okay. has to take the ownership of right. that decision, the skipper. Mm-hmm. And um, that was um, my friend Cameron, and he would he would just that's his decision. Um, and we just go with it. And we all agreed that. Right. So that was the underlying okay. known. So there was well. a so decision had, maker 
at some point. At some point, <laughs> he never really had never too had much to. decisions. That was the greatest thing. Yeah. We were able to get through that storm with three people rowing. We were strong enough to hold our trajectory, mm -hmm. meant less rowing later. Mm. And uh, for the breaks then, if you have three on, then one's obviously not rowing. How yeah. then do, do oh, you Oh, the kind of breaks, yeah, shorter. Yeah, yeah you've got the shorter breaks. So it's a, sort of a long time in, uh, by, yeah, on so, the oars then. So some people will do this, this row that they go for the race win. Mm -hmm. And then some people are doing free experience. We went for more of the experience. So we were doing two up just to, to keep the boat ticking over, but to also not be so tired. So we had two hours off to either eat, sleep, maintenance, rest. When you do three, you, you squeeze that time. So you end up uh, with one hour off, um, but you still need to do these maintenance, the navigation, eat. So you're really only getting 45 minutes sleep and that, can, that sleep deprivation can add up. And we prepared for that by doing a stupid challenge. But it was really good because it allowed us to understand how does the mind and body react to lack of sleep in a rowing situation. So we did an indoor row long distance all right. and two of my friends um, came in on it and we all tried to row as long as we could um, and basically go for world records okay. for as long as we can. All right. And, and did um, you get that world record? I got a lightweight one and my friend got the heavyweight one. Um, mine was 83 hours and oh. uh, that was really good because it was Basically, we fundamentally found out what the key thing to stay awake is. And what's that? Chat. <laughs> podcasts. Podcasts, yeah. <laughs> um, pretty much, like, we tried listening to podcasts, we tried watching TV, we tried um, different stimulants, like types of food, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, caffeine was terrible, that up and down. You have that crash, it just was mm. terrible, it just didn't work. Sugar was terrible. Um, too much food, at one time you have that crash, that slump that can actually put you into sleep. Um, so we found that just discussions and, dis and chatting was the best way to stay awake. Right. And uh, keep us on this. Being yeah, engaged. I think so, yeah. yeah. Discussing um, anything really, like future life, whatever you're gonna do in the future, that sort of thing, or how things are right now, how you're feeling right now, or you've got niggles. That, just anything like that was really key. Um, and you know, we, we got to 83 hours, my friend got to 100 hours actually, and um, it was pretty bad. I mean, we were a bit of a state. But then when we got to Atlantic Road, we were having an hour and a half sleep. So we knew that, okay, over four hour, 40 days, an hour and a half sleep, um, 12 times because you're doing different shit, is actually not bad, really. That's eight hours. It's like what people have anyway, but it's broken. Um, it's broken sleep. It's not, not the best. So you completed it in 40 days. Mm -hmm. um, and when you got back onto land, was there a readjustment to that? Can't walk properly, you've got the sea legs, yeah. fall over, whatever. Yeah. Um, it was noisy, and when I say noisy, it was noisy in terms of its stimulation. So on the boat, there's so little stimulation, it's just yourselves and the, and the elements. And then when I came onto, onto, onto the harbour, it was just people, noise, and then I didn't, I didn't even look at technology. Yeah. I, I was, I knew, like, I mentally knew, I was talking to my friend, I said, you open that phone up, you're gonna get, you're gonna turn it off. Mm. I did that instantly, I was like, no, and it wasn't even like, it's not saying that it's popularity or everything like that, it's just mm. the notifications of like an app coming up, like go, go eat or something. Mm. And just that being bombardment. Constant 40 days worth of it. Well, yeah, probably, yeah, <laughs> 40 days worth of it, but more like, getting used to that whole like being fast to to keep up with everything mm -hmm. and 
that, that to me was really hard to adjust. Um, Antigua is a very calm island, mm. but we felt it was like very, a lot going on. Yeah. When we um, came back to UK, um, that was the, a huge, huge shock. So Antigua, it was taking some time to you know, understand life again. Um, getting used to the routine, getting up at this time, changing your sleeping pattern, your, your clock needs to change again. Because mm -hmm. you've, you've gone into a two hour on, two hour off your clock now, you need to do long sleeps. And I was waking up sometimes rowing um, in the sleep. People saying like I was moving like my leg like this mm -hmm. or something. And um, I would wake up a lot like um, in the middle of the night, uh, about one o'clock on the first night, I remember waking up surging like I was on something, like some sort of drug. And I was like, wide awake because on the boat it's almost like you're trained to wake up in adrenaline mode because you need to get on the oars and row like you're yeah. you, so I was it was so unhealthy I was in bed and I was like wow and I, I just so I needed to just run I just I ran about four times in one night around the harbour right. running off the steam the adrenaline and trying to go back to sleep again and that took me about four four days to adjust I think until I was having a long sleep, and then coming back, I'm sorry to to UK, um, the tube and that was just horrendous. Yeah. Heathrow and my God, I, that was really overwhelming. By that point, I had delved into the phone by then, right. and I was still getting into it, and I, I wasn't quite keeping up with it, sort of thing. And mm. um, it took about, I would say, about a month and a half before I was really settled back into normal life again, right. where you had emails and. Uh, talking to people, meeting friends, and that, that sort of took me a while. Um, weird, weird adjustment. Yeah. I, I didn't expect it to be so drastic. I, I, I didn't expect you to say that it was that it had been uh, six weeks or a month and a half. I didn't expect it to be that long. To be uh, fully to, to, back. to, be, to yeah. fully adjust back. That's uh, Some people haven't. Yeah. Even now. Yeah, some people don't. Yeah. They um, yeah. uh, want to go on, on the ocean again. Um, I know people who are like always on the ocean mm -hmm. now. Like mm -hmm. trying to row all the time. Just to get away. To get away. Just running away mm. from society. Mm. And it's like hard to get back into society. Because when we were on that boat, as, as I said earlier, you build your own your, your own world. Yeah. And you're out there for so long, you start liking this new world. Mm. You have less pressures, less stresses, whatever. And then mm. you kind of come back and layers start getting on, added onto you. And some people just don't want it. So they try and run away again. Mm -hmm. So how long after uh, that was there another challenge? It, it feels like you've you've gone from one challenge to to the next. Yeah, because de delving in deeper. When I was on that ocean rowing boat, you have so much time in your mind to think about what you want to do. Okay. And what you want to. So you're already plotting the next. You're plotting so much. <laughs> I plotted about fifteen adventures, and anything that came to mind was like genius, and I wrote it down in this logbook I had. Right. It's like, oh, that's great. Like, let's do this. Let's do that. And then I would have like DMCs with myself, deep meaningful conversations okay. in my mind, thinking. DMCs, I've never heard it called a DMC, but yeah, I get it. Deep meaning, yeah, <laughs> yeah DMCs, yeah. 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 Um, DMC. I'm thinking about the um, the importance in my life, what I cared for, what what are the major things I was trying to be quite philosophical when I was rowing. What do I actually care about? What are the key things that to make me tick? And you know, I was trying to figure out my life from mental health perspective and getting into the outdoors and why it was really important for me in the mental health aspect. It was, I guess, that love of nature and that need and that attachment for nature is everything. Um, and then when I was on that boat, I was like, I just need to do something back, give back to this this, this thing to save me, which is uh, 
well, I am, I am, I am nature. Why am I talking like it saved me? And this is the problem. We're built almost in a world where we are detached from what nature is. It's like humans versus nature. And so whatever I do next, I want to be coexistent part of it. So I started devising like ways of doing that. How can I promote the protection of the thing that protects me? <laughs> Weirdly, uh, people don't think of it that way. They think of it like nature is protecting biodiversity, the uh, uh, CO2 emission that you know, it's protecting you as well. Mm -hmm. like it's not just yeah, it's allowing you to live, allowing you to yeah, to allowing us to live, yeah. and we should protect it to protect us. It's we're all connected, and um, what I wanted to do after the row was something that would help protect and raise awareness of, 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 of basically supporting the support network okay. that supports everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's nature and went on to sort of plan a, an adventure that would be more environmental. Okay. And so coming from a mental health perspective, the, in, the environment is the root of my men, mental health um, drive, like drive of, of raising awareness for mental health. It's like the outdoors, has given me the freedom to think. And then that has helped me to reevaluate my thoughts for someone who has anxiety. That's really allowed me to improve my mental health. This can do this for our others. So let's try and protect what can be a cure for people from our own societal norms that we've put on ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting concept, I guess, very philosophical. So, so, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, so what, what was that? What were your thoughts on that and what have you done since to do that? Well, what, what the thoughts were is that there's obviously a problem with how we are integrating ourselves with, with nature. The way we live is there's humans and our towns and we're in this box and then out, well, wilderness is outside us. And basically what that does is as we expand, we eat into the wilderness slowly and we destroy migratory pathways for biodiversity and there's a lot in biodiversity that it helps people like the sounds of birds is really soothing for people in, the, in when they go for walks and stuff and if you're destroying their migrationary routes through building massive infrastructure projects um, to fast pace the economy you end up in a situation where that biodiversity is gone and that's something that could help you uh, in the future and I can't imagine a life without having those outlets. So w when we had the pandemic two years ago or a year ago, the proper pandemic with the lockdowns, imagine being in London in that town and not having those outlets. And that is your new world. Imagine that is it. That's, yeah. that's your new world. That's and a scary, that's that's a scary thought, it's a scary place. Seriously scary. Mm -hmm. And it's made me want to drive climate solutions and when I say climate solutions it's how do we solve our population growth with coexistence with nature so we're not destroying what protects us whilst we grow because unfortunately I don't think it's going to be an easy conversation to say we need to stop population like that's not going to happen that's not going to happen that's not going to happen so the elephant in the room here is like right so we need to coexist with nature if we're going to keep expanding how can we do that is there new ways of building infrastructure so we can keep the biodiversity, so we can keep nature with people? Do we build up instead of laterally and out? So, you know, there's mm, all these yeah. different concepts yeah, yeah. and things. And I wanted to explore what people are doing 
um, or, you know, around the UK or around the world and see what we could maybe do to scale up um, our solution to our impact, which is currently negative to the to the environment. So how can we how can we kind of reverse that change? So that came from the ocean row. <laughs> what the the thought process? Yeah. Um, DMCs that you were having. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know you've done a, a few different adventures between the uh, the row, but that kind of probably bleeds best onto your pedal for parks. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Adventure. I guess. Yeah. Um, you are kind enough to send me a link to that, and I've I've watched it, and there's a lot going on. It's, it's very it's, busy. Yeah, um, but very in, in, insightful, I thought, uh, in terms of all the the kind of projects that that you visited, and and and, uh, and and all the kind of improvements that could be used, that that could be put in place. So, well, talk about how that pedal for parts came about, what the concept was it for, of it was, and 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 what you what you look to achieve with it. I guess it came from those core values, like outdoor learning, helping, that sort of thing. So out, the outdoor element was the cycle. Um, and A to B was you know, learning by exploring the UK and exploring different climate solutions projects and then helping, highlighting and showing what can be done, what people can invest in, what people can join, volunteer in to make a positive impact on the environment, which will then help everybody, uh, you know, not just on a mental health standpoint or physical health standpoint, but in a spiritual sense as well, having that nature um, preserved and protected and scaled, scaled up, because at the minute we're scaling it down. Let's try, I think, and scale it up or keep it at a maintained level. So that whole film was all about showing all of these climate solutions um, and providing hope. If you talk to kids nowadays, and you ask them, some of them, especially ones in towns, what do they look forward to with the climate change debate? <laughs> they think we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. Because like of the news and yeah. the media, it's mm -hmm. all negative. Mm -hmm. And I thought with my teammates that let's try and shine the positive light and show um, the future generations, no, there is something we can do about this. There is hope. We can build infrastructure in a different way. We can treat our national parks in a, in a different sense. I mean, simple things like leaving no trace might not seem like a big deal, but collectively it is, because yeah. you're reducing the, um, I mean, the pollution in, in these spaces, which then can kill off biodiversity, kill off even plants as well. And, and, the, and you moved down from uh, the north? Yeah, we started up in Orkney. Orkney, yeah. yeah Orkney, um, and we went to the Isles of Scilly. And the reason for having the islands was that Interestingly, they had various climate solutions that weren't on mainland that were quite interesting to explore, and you know, especially Orkney with the renewable energy. Um, that was quite an interesting one to, to explore. How can we get energy um, without using fossil fuels, which is obviously killing ecosystems? So um, tidal turbines, wind turbines, green hydrogen, all these futuristic concepts, um, some of which are already happening, and just exploring is that possible to be scaled up? Um, in Orkney, they have kind of like a microgrid where they, they generate so much electricity within the island that they're actually able to completely provide renewable energy for the entire island, 100%. They don't need any natural gas, fossil fuels, anything like that. And they actually have excess that they store inside the hydrogen tanks. So what they do is that the excess electricity, they convert it into hydrogen so they can store it 
in the times where they have maybe um, less wind turning, they can then tap into the hydrogen. So it's always 100%. And even on top of that, they make so much energy up there that they're able to even export that into our national grid on mainland. Can we take that sort of microgrid sustainability um, way of living into you know, mainland UK and across the country? Uh, can we make these little microgrids where we're not so reliant on moving fossil fuels and things like that? And can we have these hydrogen storage um, tanks in different places so that when we generate excess, we can capture it and then tap into it later? Um, so that, yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Can we? Yeah, it's possible, I think. Right. I think it's um, possible to scale hydrogen across the economy. We have um, pipelines from oil and gas. You just convert some of them or even maybe have to repurpose them a little bit mm -hmm. to carry hydrogen and that's possible. Mm -hmm. it, we have the infrastructure to do it. I come from an energy industry background, yeah. so it's possible to do it and there's a lot of investment in there. Um, the trouble with hydrogen at the minute is that it has to be generated from electrolysis, the process of seawater um, being broken up into hydrogen atoms and oxygen, you break it up and that needs electricity to do that and that comes from a renewable source, so you've got wind, tidal, geothermal, these sort of sources, even nuclear has been experimented to, to generate hydrogen, so you need to have that supply chain to produce the hydrogen, but when the hydrogen is made, it can be stored um, like oil and gas can be. So it's quite useful for the periods when that renewable energy is not working so well. You've got the hydrogen supplement that. So it's kind of a system of renewable. Mm -hmm. And now um, a lot of the materials that they're using to build the wind farms and the things to do with tidal turbines and materials can be recycled and you can repurpose some of them. They're looking even now at solutions as these blades, for instance, for the wind turbines apparently at the minute they're in the situation where they can't recycle them and they end up in landfill but now there's new blades being made that can be recycled so we're having more of a circular energy economy which is really interesting and that's what Orkney was about and that was something that I think for a lot of people don't know about and it's nice to share this um, to provide hope and the issue uh, I guess with um, scaling up of course the wind turbines and all this stuff it has a negative impact on biodiversity so how do we build the infrastructure the renewable power plants the way we how do we do this without kind of breaking up nature migratory path pathways so having that discussion was quite intriguing um, there are probably ways to do it that I think would be quite difficult to do in a in a, in a country like the UK because it's not a lot of land mass so a lot of the energy and these wind farms going to sea because there's a lot of sea mass yes. and um, slightly less environmental impact in the sense that they flow on the top of the sea rather than they're like built into the yeah. seabed. Mm -hmm. So Pyramid they're a lot floating mm -hmm. wind turbines that are being spoken about um, and some of which are being built and tested out at the minute. So that, that Orkney was quite fascinating just for that and the reason why we were able to do it in part of the journey we put water bike section Cycling. I was, did want to talk Cycling. about that. Yeah, it was an interesting crossing. How, yeah. So where, how, how did that? Come, where did they come from? Like, did you know about them before? Well, here you go. Ocean rowing community is full of nutty people <laughs> who uh, do all these wacky ideas. And one of my friends there, mm -hmm. he was uh, like cycling on one of these in Monaco when it was being launched. Uh, this this water bike concept. Okay. And um, I saw a video of that, and I thought that could be a cool way to connect the islands. Because we were thinking that we, I knew from the energy industry background that Orkney would be a good topic. Mm -hmm. 
how can we get to Orkney in a more sustainable way or like how can we do it that's not using the ferry or reducing ferry emissions and how can we add adventure to it as well to make it exciting yeah. and the water bike was like oh that's a great one <laughs> and the Pendant Firth that connect the sea between Orkney and John O'Groats that's a 15 mile per hour tidal stream at times so yeah. has a really dangerous element to it but again learned from lesson one in English Channel research talk to the right people and you can make it happen <laughs> well yeah and you certainly certainly made it happen it was a uh, uh, and then again uh, down in the in the southwest when you uh, you connected oh, Sicily. Sicily, uh, Sicily to it yeah um the Caribbean the, Ca- the UK <laughs> the Caribbean of the UK yeah uh, but you went down through every national park? Tried to, every single one. Didn't right. do all of them. Okay. Uh, we only did um, the ones that we could between the two tides. So the complication of having water bike sections was that there was only certain time windows that were suitable. All right. So that gave us a two-week window. So unless you're super Mark Beaumont mm-hmm. who can mm-hmm. cycle a million miles per hour everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's quite difficult to go to all national parks, 15 of them in that time frame. So yeah. we just chose um, a route that was through the UK that would go from John O'Groats to Land's End, but would, but would pass kind of as many of the parks as possible without detrimenting the time aspects. Um, so we did the Cairngorms, we did Loch Lomond and Trossets, we did Lake District, we did Brecon Beacons briefly, um, we did Exmoor and Dartmoor, so we did, mm-hmm. we did six. Um, there is 15. We did visit quite a lot of them in our training um, when we were doing tr- training runs and it was, it was good. So where were the, where were the highlights in that? What was interesting is they're the kind of the front line of human impact on the environment because yeah. they're the most pristine, deepest wilderness areas of the UK. I mean, wilderness, I mean, it's almost gone. Yeah. Um, but there are sections of maybe the Cairngorms that are you could class as wilderness, as wild. There is no infrastructure. There's no where for miles in the core of the sort of the mountain range, um, and it was really interesting to see how national park authorities, who know of the impacts of humans in these places, how they react and what they're doing to try and educate the you know the public who might not have the the know knowledge or the know how of leave no trace and mm-hmm. things like that to to. To, to come and see these places. But one of the things that we learned when we were in the National Park is connecting people to nature is really important for them to start caring for it. Mm-hmm. So by saying, no, you can't come to a National Park, it's not the answer. No. Because then they don't care for it mm-hmm. because they don't know why it's good. So they try to educate people on the importance of the National Park and why it's important, important for not just themselves, but you know, the ecology and biodiversity and why leaving no trace is really important. And then they're really smart with the way they build their tourist destination. They build the, the, the infrastructure in localized zones so that not all of the national park is impacted by human activity. And I think in Lake District, it was pretty hard to do that because it's pretty much already been mm-hmm. um, infrastructured. It's going to set much uh, throughout every, as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. but in places like Cairngorms and Scotland, it was really good to see that they are very aware not to build in uh, mm-hmm. as much. So. Yeah, that finding that balance and then understanding how nature-based solutions, um, such as growing trees and restoring bog, is important for flood mitigation, mm-hmm. carbon capture storage, biodiversity, and 
those sort of things that they're doing at the minute is really interesting. It's the first time they've been able to put a currency on nature in the last few years and actually get businesses to invest in nature and actually make a profit from the investments. Okay. So they, they, there's um, now our charity that we did work mm-hmm. with has actually figured out a way to drive economic benefit from restoring nature, and that's a game changer. Well, yeah, that's going to be very popular for the industrialists, I suppose, that we think tend to run the decision-making process in, uh, in yeah. the government. So, yeah, that will that could, like you say, that is a game changer. Could make and a big difference. I, I was really happy to hear that. Yeah. I was a little bit sad that it has to come down to money mm. and it couldn't be just a mindset thing. Yeah. But if it has to come down to money and that's the way to do it, uh, you know, it's a solution. Yeah. And let's go down that route and see how it goes. Um, one of the other things that we tried to do in our film was discuss about behavior change and things that you can do in your life um, to, to, to kind of improve. Like, you know, we mentioned how we made our adventure as eco as possible. Mm-hmm. We carbon offsetted it uh, where we couldn't offset emissions. We had recycled clothing uh, from different kit sponsors, brand sponsors. Um, We had um, sort of eco sustainable swap outs of things. So toilet paper made from bamboo, toilet paper, not toilet paper, bamboo toothbrushes, bamboo. It might seem like greenwashy type stuff for an adventure, but it makes the awareness piece come out. And I think it's important to see what you can do to to, to be more environmentally friendly with what you're doing in your ventures. And that's, that's what we were trying to, trying to achieve. Um, I think there's a lot of that now um, on, on uh, even from events being organized and, and, and I think about travel a lot now when I'm thinking about going to do something. Like, do I, I want to go to the Alps? Well, I need to fly. That's a negative impact. Well, how do, I, yeah, how, do I, how do we balance that? Well, am I going to use the train? Well, it's going to take longer, but it's, it's, a lesser, it's a lesser impact. Do I go for longer? Do I try and connect it with something else? So it's yeah, it's certainly something I think about, and I think a lot of people in the outdoor industry think about. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's in every industry yet though. It's not in every industry <laughs> yet because they might not be so connected with nature. Yes, and maybe through these programs that the national parks and mm. people are trying to connect the businesses with nature, economic benefit, mm. come volunteer, come connect. Yes. And hopefully they'll come in. And it was shown at COP26, which was just down the road. Oh, in our film was, yeah. Yeah, film, yeah. Our which film was, was shown there. Yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, and did you get, uh, at the time, did you get a lot of feedback from the. Yeah, the, delegates. The event, who delegates were there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of the feedback was we need more of this. Mm-hmm. We need more of grassroots, what's going on on the ground, what the people are doing. Mm-hmm. Everything in that COP was high level policy and yeah. X amount of billion, X amount of millions being spent on that. Mm-hmm. But what are the people doing and how are the communities actually living? Mm-hmm. How is society? And I think the film was quite good in revealing that a bit. I think the one thing I took away from it was, obviously there was the adventure in it, but the, you, you, within the film there was a lot of the, the uh, initiatives that you went to talk to, and then, but at, at the end there was still like another I don't know how many there was because it just kept another initiative, another, and there was just all these, which was very promising. Um, there was obviously so many initiatives that you couldn't fit it into the film because 26. it was, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, as uh, it was very uh, sort of 
uh, heartwarming, I suppose, initially because you so think, much. "Wow, somebody's somebody's doing something. That's great." Uh, and there's lots of lot of good progressive stuff going on to yeah. to the, that's going to benefit and nature. Get, and they just don't get hurt. Yes, and that was what we tried to do that's with what the, the film. For, yeah. That's, what yeah, yeah. that's 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 the whole platform for, mm. for the film pedal parts. Mm. That's what we want to do. Yeah, we're going to do more of it. Yeah. Um, well, before we go on to the, the more part, obviously your um, day job, as it were. Uh, I'll well talk about your day job and how that has integrates into. Yeah. So originally, I was going into the energy industry from a geoscience background, so getting involved with the resources um, and. I didn't really want to be too involved in the oil and gas industry. That's an obvious route when you go in through geology and geoscience. There are environmental sort of jobs and I wasn't getting anything. I just wasn't getting a job. Then um, one of the things that I found was really interesting in the research that I've been doing over the, the, the course of three or four years or so in energy industry, I love researching it and finding out what people are doing and driving engagement into certain areas and so I wanted to go down sort of the data route um, working with energy industry data and being an analyst of this is the activity that's going on in the energy industry and understanding what is happening where who's doing what and when and why and then being able to influence maybe a little bit of that because it comes from uh, an overview picture you look at when you when you're talking about changing an industry you come from a high level and you're looking at, right, who's doing what, where and why? Okay, so that, they're doing that really well. That's going really well. Why is that going really well? But what will that impact have? When this impact could be better, maybe we can drive more engagement there. So being in that position to kind of influence maybe the energy industry and highlight climate solutions um, is good through data. Um, you can do that quite well. It's the new currency, I guess, in, in the world data now. And um, um, I work with sort of geographical information systems and I will also do a lot of research and that's, that's all into energy transition and renewable energies and things like that. And in your workplace or in, in, in your sort of work world, can you see benefits coming or do you see it now? What, what's uh, the... Yeah, I mean, the people that we're working with at times are the ones that people hate, you know, like in the environmental world. So. We've, we've worked with some of the, okay, they call themselves oil companies or energy companies, mm-hmm. but we're working to highlight the sort of big investments that they can do to sort of make a big positive change as well. Like, mm-hmm. did you know in Aberdeen, they're doing this energy hub where they're trying to promote more hydrogen. This is a project you can really get involved in with your billions. Um, and you know that sort of thing and through our intelligence they can see what they can get involved in and um, yeah 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 so um, that's one way Mm -hmm. Um, and then another thing is for smaller companies grassroots companies to understand what uh, all the other players are doing and be part of you know it's an energy transition team at the minute the whole Mm -hmm. industry before used to be very commercial and silent and not transparent and all money, oil, this, or you know, now the industry has changed. It's now got wave, tidal, geothermal, uh, hydrogen company. Everyone is in this together to find a solution to a sustainable and affordable energy source that is not damaging the environment. Mm. And that's the main agenda in this industry now. And we're providing data and intelligence on all these great 
opportunities that people can get involved in. Okay. So it feels quite purposeful. It's very, yes. it's very much like climate sol solutions mm -hmm. as well. So, so we can feel positive, can we, about the, about the environment? We don't have to, it's not all doom and gloom. I don't think so, it's all doom and gloom, but I think things can move faster. Right. I mean, let's think about it. You've got a purse string of X amount of billion profits every year, mm. and you're only putting in 2% in a positive. Let's get that number up. Let's get, it up. Let's get that number up. And well. that, that's something that we, you know, in our, my, my company, I can try and drive. Okay. Well, good. Well, I'll look forward to you to, to solving that for us. Thanks. I doubt it. There's millions <laughs> you of can people. Try. Yeah, it's just nice to be part of it. Yes. Yeah. Big picture. So from now then, you talked about more adventures from the uh, following per on the same vein as the pedal for parks. What what of what's happening in the in the future for? Well, we we started it um, as a, a sort of a project, a one project, and then we realised this is not a one project thing. This is a this is a we're in a, like a frontline war um, with climate change and and. Um, fighting um, ourselves almost. We're like uh, against um, a lot of commercial decisions in, in this, this film is highlighting solutions that are very expensive because they haven't been done before. But taking that risk and that jump could be really environmentally beneficial. Uh, and I think that we're kind of on a bit of a front line war here. So do you think that's the, it's the, the investment isn't coming because they can't see the, the benefits? Most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. It's, I can't see the benefits. There's no known benefit, his, history of benefit. Yeah. Where's the return on investment? Has return this done, been done before? Blah, 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 blah. High risk. Da, da, da. Same old, like, an entrepreneur chat. Mm. And I think it's important to have that marketing prowess and that way of selling these solutions to these people um, so that they can invest in it. Um, I think the better you are at that, the more likely there are to be taken on board. So climate explorers is, you know, if we, we've, we've created a community interest c company. So climate explorers is what it is now. We were pedal for parks, we've moved to climate explorers. Nice name, exploring the climate, exploring for adventure. And we're using adventure as a way of showing the, the journey of, of, or connecting the dots of such. It's, it's a nice way to, to do it. And people like to follow the journey and you see this solution, that solution, it's, it's quite nice, nice uh, story. And um, what we want to you know, achieve out of it is, is basically to drive investment into in climate solutions that could have a positive impact on the planet. And that's the main objective and that's never gonna change and, uh, until you know, we're there, yeah. <laughs> which we're not. <laughs> no, yeah, so we've got a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, a bit of time to go, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what kind of uh, events and things are you doing to as part of Climate Explorers then, what's, what's involved in that? So um, I think the medium of film is very good at storytelling, um, blogging, social media, raising awareness like this, but one of the things that we really would like to do is create international teams where there's people in different countries exploring climate solutions for themselves and then creating content. And the more content that we can create, it's kind of like media noise mm -hmm. and it gets into the public eye People don't really understand something until they see it. And one way of seeing it is through film and media. So if we can scale what we're doing across the world, different teams, like from here's the Guatemala team showing the climate solutions there. And 
potentially mutual learnings for, yeah. for other areas well, of the world. That's so. a really bang mm. point there. Mm. What are people doing elsewhere that could come here? Mm -hmm. And what are we doing here that can go there? Mm -hmm. Swapsies. Yeah. I mean, that awareness is, is really good. So yeah. we're like a bridge. We're trying to be a bridge. Okay. And it's in, and you can see it creating some interest? Are you seeing the sort of... Yeah. Uh, some com well, we started on a smaller scale with com some of the companies meeting each other and realizing that they can work together mm -hmm. because the companies that we've been talking to oh, by the way, we spoke to this company and we've been able to connect the dots a bit. Mm -hmm. um, that's been really good. Um, I mean, that's quite small scale, but with enough of that happening, we can mm -hmm. we can really make a difference there. And I think people watching the film, they might see a climate solution. And I, I haven't for one actually heard someone say, I've got like some business out of this yet. Right. Of such, such like um, one of the climate solutions that we're on the film, I haven't heard someone go, I, through your film, someone has come up to me and said they want to invest X amount of money yet, but it's the start. Yes. Know, it's only one film, we're trying yeah. to do more. Do more and, and, and raise the awareness. Um, I think I saw on your social media that you've got some uh, rowing machines. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's what's the what's happening oh, It's slightly off piece here now. Okay. Okay, so, um, yeah, so I've got a family member who, who's autistic and... Okay. Uh, has uh, really struggled in the pandemic, and um, another one of my friends, his family member also has autism, mm -hmm. really struggled in the pandemic, and wanted to do some sort of like challenge that's quite hard. My friend said, "Oh, you did the rowing challenge last week. Can we do that again?" And I was like, "Yeah, okay." Well, so we've we've basically gone in to do the rowing challenge right. again, like a long distance row okay. on the rowing machine, right. um, and then try to raise awareness in in the community about. Autism. Autism. Um, yeah, so okay. it's like your off piece. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't know if it was connected to the, the climate explorers or not. Yeah, so, not, uh, not so no, much. More no. like family, personal. No, fair enough. Another, another charity event. For, for yeah, you to, I, I, to I, get I like to in. do some like raising monies yeah. if I can. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, and obviously, you're here at uh, we're, at the moment. We're sitting here at uh, Fort William Mountain Festival. I, you've got Pedal for Parts is going to show here on yeah. the environmental night as well on, yeah. on Sunday. Hopefully we get some juices flowing and some yeah. ideas. Excellent. Uh, and then obviously develop climate. The, the next step is to develop climate explorers to, to what, we, what you discussed earlier. Um, any other plans on the horizon following the row? Is there, is there many? Yeah, I mean, there's... Well, what's the, I know there's plenty of plans because you've, had your, you've got your list, but what's next? What's the, what's the next big challenge? Um, well, I've got that row coming up, which mm -hmm. is... Yep. Um, around April time okay. and then we're looking to do some more um, work with the national parks so doing short films right. so going to each national park and highlighting a bit more um, one thing that we noticed in our film that because it's so fast-paced and we go through so many projects you don't get a, enough time on one project mm -hmm. so what we wanted to do is go in a bit more depth and detail on certain projects within the national park so we're going to do a few micro smaller adventures uh, connecting different climate solutions in 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 and around this year, um, maybe next year too, and on a big big scale, I, I've I've got um, a few few big plans. Okay, any you're um, allowed to talk about? Are you? you, you can talk I love about? swimming, right? And um, I'd I'd really like to do um, some some of the big swims in right. the world. There's okay. a challenge called Seven Oceans, right? Um, and it, you, it's like you swim the English Channel, but it's that equivalent all over the world. Um, and, and then there's also another 
aspect of, of this challenge that I'd like to do something that I can't research and I've not done before. Okay. So a swim <laughs> that's not been done before right. in an environment that I've not been to before because I want to be able to challenge myself in a situation where I cannot research. Right, I was going to ask you, well. yeah. Because okay. I've done a lot of research and that sort of thing. It would be quite interesting to see what what can I do here um, okay. when I don't have the cards almost. Right, well, we'll look forward to, to hearing more about that. Yeah. I think that sounds, sounds like an interesting one, especially if you can't research it, because it sounds like that's quite key to all your adventures now. It has been yeah. a little bit to do with research. Take I love your, all that. Take yeah. you out your comfort zone a little bit. A bit of academic stuff, I like that. Uh -huh. um, but this one is definitely going to take out my comfort zone. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Isaac, thank you very much for your time. I know you've, you've done a lot of, uh, lot of podcasts, uh, but I've really enjoyed sitting down with you and, uh, and, yeah, and listening to, listen to the story. Right. Yeah, I, I love this one uh, and I love this festival. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's been really in, intimate. It's a close, closer, closer festival. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks very much for your time. And um, we'll, we'll ca definitely catch up with you again. Mm -hmm.